Bible in front of you. Please grab it, open it, and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And that portion of scripture we read just a few moments ago. Genesis 2. Now, I've been um, busy poring over the LCPC website over the last couple of days. And as I've done that, I've noticed that the site describes us by using a few different terms. Okay? So we are called on the website Christians, which I'm pleased about. I'm glad that our website makes that clear. But we're also called other things. We're called evangelical. And we're called Presbyterian. And we're also called reformed. Now that's fine and that is good. But are we all clear about what those terms mean? You know, if you were asked to define exactly what a Presbyterian was, Where would you go? Would you be able to do it? What about if we were asked to uh, define exactly what's meant by the term reformed? What are we going to say? Are we going to be able to define that? Well, an essential aspect of what it means to be a reformed congregation is that we ascribe to something that is called federal... Or covenant theology. We as a congregation, we ascribe to covenant theology. Now, what on earth is that? What is covenant theology? Well, friends, it's really a way of reading the Bible. Covenant theology is a way of understanding the flow of the Bible a way of understanding the Bible that that focuses on the fact that Scripture highlights that God enters into covenants with man. That God enters into what are mutually binding relationships with humanity. Relationships where God will agree to um, act in a certain way. God will agree to do certain things provided that mankind acts according to the terms of those covenants. Covenant theology. And there are lots of covenants in Scripture. And we're going through Genesis. And I promise you, that over the next few weeks and months, we're going to see a lot of these covenants. But there are a few big ones. There are a few major covenants. And one of those is called the covenant of works. You got that? The covenant of works. And this was the arrangement that God made with man before sin entered the world. The covenant of works is the arrangement, the original arrangement that God had with mankind. So, 
What was it all about? What was this original relationship that God had with mankind? Well, friends, that is what we are going to examine this morning in our short time together. We're going to consider three points about the covenant of works. Three points about the covenant of works. And the first of these is the context of the covenant. That's our first point, the context of the covenant. Now, this section that we've read, it doesn't begin where you would expect it to begin, does it? It doesn't begin at verse 1. It begins at verse 4. Now, if your Bibles are open, do you notice anything familiar? It's a real test. Do you notice anything familiar about verse 4? It begins with this expression, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, do you see anything familiar about that? Well, hopefully you do. Because if you cast your minds back just a few weeks and you cast your mind back to the introductory sermon that we had in Genesis, then you might recall that we noticed that there was this repeated expression in Genesis. There's an expression that the author uses all the way through the book, time and time again. It's an expression that takes this really wide focus and it narrows down the focus. The expression is used to to have this wide scope narrowed into something that is much more intimate. Do you remember that? And this is an example of that phrase. So what's happening is that this huge wide scope in Genesis chapter 1, where man is set in his relationship with everything in creation, everything in the heavens of the earth. Well, then we have this phrase, and now the focus is much more narrow. The focus here in this section is God's intimate relationship with man, man's intimate relationship with God. So there's a narrowing of focus. But what's this section all about? Well, first of all, when you read it, I'm sure the first thing that, that, that jumps out is that this section highlights the creation of the first man, doesn't it? We read in these verses that God formed Adam and that he breathed the breath of life into him. But surprisingly, in some ways, the author... He doesn't linger there, does he? Now, did you notice when we, when we read through it, there's only one single verse given over to the creation of Adam. You know, there's only just a few words. And then the author, he moves on. You know, there's momentum. He moves forward. You see, the focus here isn't so much in the creation of Adam. The focus of this portion of scripture is on his environment. It's on the environment of man. So what do we learn about that? What do we learn about the context of the covenant? What do we learn about the environment? What do we learn about the Garden of Eden? Well, friends, I don't know if you are 
regular users of the BBC iPlayer or not? Have you given that a blast? I think the iPlayer is fantastic. And if you do use it, you may have seen uh, the recent BBC series. I think it's just called Australia. As a side note, if you've seen it and you, and you didn't watch it on the iPlayer, you're in trouble because I'm pretty sure that it's on at the same time as our Sunday evening service. So uh, I want to speak to you uh, after, the, after our service if that's the case. But more seriously, if you get a chance to watch this program, watch it because it's fascinating. The program follows the presenter as he goes through Australia. He examines life in the country. He gives a wee bit of a history of the country. And one striking feature is how the program shows Australia to be a land full of raw and natural resources. You know, in Australia just now, there are huge mining projects. You know, people are mining for iron ore and for uh, precious stones, and they're, they're mining for gold. It's a land rich in natural resources. And when we're reading together through Genesis 2, and when we're thinking about the Garden of Eden, that is what we have to picture. Eden is a bountiful place. It is a rich place. It is a place abounding in natural resources. Just check it out. Have a look at the text. Verse 9, it speaks about the abundance of trees in the garden. There's trees everywhere. Trees that are good for, for, for fruit and most of them good for eating. Then verse 10 there's this river that winds through the garden. It, you know, it waters the land as it flows by. Then verse 12 talks about precious metals, talks about raw materials. In the garden, you get it. It's a picture of a beautiful, fertile, lush, bountiful land. A land that is rich and flourishing. But what has that got to do with the covenant of works? Eden is amazing, okay. What has that got to do with man's original relationship with God? You see, this picture of a paradise, this bountiful place, it sheds light on why God works in covenant. Why does he do it? Why does God work in covenant? Well, he does that because he wants to bless mankind. God sets up covenants so that man is given an opportunity to obey God. God sets up these contracts, these bonds, these covenants, so that man's got this opportunity to obey the covenant. And so in turn, it gives God an excuse, if you like, to pour out increased goodness and increased blessing upon man. And that is what's happened in the Garden of Eden. You see, in just a couple of verses, we're going to hear God say to Adam, Adam, if you obey this covenant, all of this 
all of it can be yours. If you obey the covenant, you can have life and life in the fullest in paradise. God works in covenant to bless man. And at that point, let me say to those here who are doubting God, let me say to you if you are doubting the provision of God this morning, let me ask you to consider the Garden of Eden and consider the fact that man wasn't formed in Eden, was he? God formed, he made Adam, and then he took him and he placed him in Eden. He loved man so much that he took him and he deliberately placed him in his beautiful paradise. And then consider the trees of the Garden of Eden. What does it say about the trees here? It says, verse 9, that they were good to look at. They were pleasing on the eye. Now, why was that? Well, it's because such is God's love that he wanted to bless man and bless him abundantly. So he didn't just make these trees nourishing. He made them pleasing on the eye. Friends, do not doubt the provision of God. Because we see here in Eden that God was a God of provision. And I tell you this, he still is a God of provision. He loves his children. He loves us. And he provides everything that we need. And he provides so much more than that. So the context of the covenant. Okay, let's, let's kind of shift our focus a wee bit. Let's think of a second thing. We've seen the context, yeah? Let's now think about the commission of the covenant. The commission. And what we're talking about here is, is the, the activity or the task that God gives to Adam and Eve. Okay, the commission of the covenant. Now, when a child is born to a Christian home, something happens. If you've got good friends, something happens. When a child is born to a Christian home, Christian friends will perhaps buy a children's story Bible for the child. They'll go out and buy a kid's Bible, a kid's story Bible for that child. And that happened to us when Colin was born especially. We got a couple of these cracking uh, children's story Bibles. And I was flicking through these today and uh, I noticed something about them. They get Eden right, these story Bibles. You know the picture of Eden? You can imagine it, I'm sure. You know, it's really brightly coloured and there's trees and bushes everywhere and it looks lovely. Really, they get it right. But they get Adam and Eve totally wrong. Most of them. Because the picture they have of Eden 
is Adam and Eve just cutting about the place. You know, they have Adam and Eve just wandering aimlessly through the garden with not all that much to do. And that's wrong, isn't it? That's not accurate. Have a look at verse 15 and see what it's there. It says, God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to take care of it. To work and take care of it. So you see, the Garden of Eden wasn't a sort of chill-out zone and it wasn't just a place to relax. It was a place of activity. God put Adam to work. And I think it's true that all too often we can think of work as being a result of the fall. Can't we? You know, we think about labor and we think about work and the coming week of work that's approaching for, for many of us. And we can maybe think that that is a negative consequence of sin entering in the world. But it's not, is it? Now, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, the last time we were in Genesis, what were we looking at? Was it two weeks ago? We looked at the Sabbath. Something that God ordained and instituted before Adam ate from the fruit, before sin entered the world. And guess what? Work is the same as that. Work, just like the Sabbath, work is a creation ordinance. Work is a creation ordinance. And I think... You know, if, if we stand back a wee bit from Genesis just now, you know, if we take a step back and we look, we've, you know, we're in the midst of chapter two. We've been in Genesis for a few weeks. And if we think about what we've seen, what we'll realize is that this is a major theme of the opening verses and the opening chapters of Genesis. Work, labor is a prominent theme. You see, the Bible calls God's creative act. Remember we noticed that? The Bible calls this wonderful work of creation. The Bible calls it work. And then what's God's priority? God prioritizes setting out a template for our work. And now, what do we see? We see that Adam, even in a state of purity, even in his original righteousness, that Adam too, just like God, Adam is spoken of as working. So it's a prominent theme. But how are we going to apply that? Practically speaking, for you and for me in in, in our lives, how do we apply that? Well, I think, folks, there are two obvious applications here. The first one has to do with our workplace, whether that be an office or a university classroom. There is an application here for our workplace. You see, God established work before sin entered the world. And that means that there is an intrinsic value to the work that you do. Now, society of you The world outside might look at your job 
And it might look at your career and just say that that's a demeaning job. Or it's a lowly job. It's not worth that much. Well, know this. Know that God doesn't think that way. God instituted work before sin, before the fall. And that means that there is in work an inherent dignity. There's a dignity to work. And if you're struggling at work just now, you know, if, if you're struggling for motivation at work, and you're struggling to be fulfilled by your work, then don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the fact that work is something that is divinely instituted. Don't let work become all about personal gain. You see, it's not about, it's not all about personal achievement. See your work as an opportunity to glorify your God. See your job as an opportunity to glorify your creator. And guess what? If you do that, if you see that, you will be fulfilled. And you will be motivated in the workplace. So there's an application for our work in the fact that Adam was set to work. But there's a second application here. Because you see, Adam wasn't just set to work. Adam was set to work in the presence of God. He was set to work where God dwelt. And you see that word in verse 15, the word that's used of Adam's work. That's a Hebrew word, and it is used later in the Bible. It is used of the work, it is used of the service in the tabernacle. It's a word, this word that refers to Adam's work, it's a work, a word that is used later of the priestly work, of the Levitical work in the tabernacle and in the temple. You see, friends, we shouldn't just be working at our career. We should be working and serving God where he dwells. We should be working and serving in the church. Now, folks, do you do that? Are you involved in the work and the service of this congregation here in London? Are you? Are you active here? You see, we are a small congregation. You just need to look around to see that. But we have a big, big vision how to serve Jesus Christ in this city. And in order to realize that vision, we need God to bless us. But we need people. We need willing grafters. We need workers. We need people to do the door just to welcome people in the church. You know, we need people in this place just to offer a lunch on a Sunday. We need deacons. We need elders. We need Sunday school teachers. We need evangelists. Now, is that you? Is God calling you to be more involved in this place? Well, if so, communicate that 
speak to us after the service. Why? Because Adam didn't just chill out and relax in Eden, did he? No, he was created. He was given the breath of life. And in the presence of God, he got to work. He worked. Okay, let's conclude with just a word on a third thing, and that's the command of the covenant. We'll just conclude with this. We've seen the context. We've seen the commission. Let's think about the commands of the covenant. Now, the strange thing so far is that there's been no mention of these two trees that are highlighted so clearly in this portion of Scripture. I've not mentioned them yet. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see as we move to the end of this passage that we're considering that Adam is given a command that involves one of those trees. He's told, this is his covenant obligation, verse 16, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Folks, as we draw to a close, please see that even in that command, even in the command that God gives, God demonstrates his immeasurable love. What love there is, even in that command. Think about it. He loves Adam so much That this command he gives is in no way ambiguous. It is the most explicit and blunt Hebrew language. He says, you must, you must not eat from that tree. So it's unambiguous. But even in that, even in the fact that it's explicit, it's not harsh. You know, God has provided Adam with the garden. He's provided him with thousands upon thousands of trees. And what's his command? It's just don't eat that one tree, Adam. Just that one tree. It's a loving command. And then there's also love in the fact that God doesn't just give him a command. He spells out the consequences doesn't he? He loves Adam. He wants desperately for Adam to adhere to this covenant. So he says, don't eat of the fruit or you will die. You will die. And I know that just now this sermon is kind of like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like watching a film like JFK. Okay, so you're watching the film, you're listening to the sermon. Well, let's be honest, we kind of know how it ends, don't we? We know where the, the, the story goes. I'm sure everyone in this room knows that Adam breaks that covenant. He takes that fruit and he eats it. And I don't want to get into Genesis 3 quite yet. But let me close and end with this. Adam was our representative. God did not just enter into the covenant of works with Adam. He entered into the covenant of works with mankind. You see, when Adam ate that fruit, you ate that fruit. When death came to Adam because of his disobedience, death, 
it came to you. So what now? What, what, what next? The, the covenant of works is in tatters. Adam has completely broken it. What happens next? Well, almost incredibly, almost unbelievably, God steps in again. And he makes a new covenant. He makes a new agreement with mankind. He says, you know, you, you don't obey me. You, you can't obey me. But because I love you, for my part of the covenant, God says, I will send you somebody who can obey me. I will send you somebody who will by a perfect life, adhere to the terms of the covenant of works. For my part, God says, I will send you my son, and he will take upon himself that spiritual death that is promised to you and for your part, mankind. Do you know what you have to do? All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. Isn't the gospel magnificent? Isn't the gospel glorious? We have rebelled against God and at great expense to himself, he has provided a way back to him. Friends, I hope this morning that you have kept your side of the covenant. I hope this morning that you have trusted and repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.